Welcome back to Trending in Education, a very special extra episode as we celebrate International Women's Day. And to do just that, we have four amazing guests, three interviews to bring to you, amazing content. And you'll hear from Deborah Barabiches. She's the chief data scientist at Metis. You'll hear from Rochelle Rothstein, head of innovation and product strategy at Kaplan Test Prep. Nancy Lee Sanchez, who you've heard on the podcast before, executive director for the Kaplan Educational Foundation, and Esther Lee, director of program development for Kaplan Test Prep's digital media team. Amazing content, amazing points of view, and I do not want to belabor this intro any further. So we kick it all off with Brandon Jones, Michael Palmer, sitting down to talk to Deborah Barabiches. And we're joined here by Deborah Barabichez, who is the Chief Data Scientist at Metis. Uh, Deborah, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me, Brandon. It's an honor to be here. We have you here as part of our International Women's Day, Women's Day celebration uh, and uh, focus. We could really have you here any day. You are, uh, this, we, we have an, an education podcast, and you, uh, you have uh, quite the education yourself and are yourself an educator. Do you want to Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've done and, and what you're doing. Sure. Uh, I think from a very young age, I was always very curious about the world and I, I was very inquisitive and that led me to love school, <laughs> believe it or not. So I studied uh, for my undergraduate, I started studying philosophy because I grew up in Mexico and I was told I was slightly discouraged from pursuing a career in mathematics and physics, which is what I truly loved. And uh, after that, I, I realized that I love philosophy because it allowed me to ask questions about the world and how things worked. But I truly uh, loved the way mathematics did the same. And it was just a different language to be able to observe and find patterns in nature and the world. And so I, my hunger for knowledge uh, did not go away after studying philosophy. And I enrolled in a BA in physics once I moved to the US. I was very fortunate to receive a scholarship. And then I just completely fell in love with physics. And I went on to do my PhD at Stanford in California. And then I moved to New York and I did uh, two postdoctoral fellowships in physics and applied math at Columbia and at the Quran Institute, which is part of NYU. And uh, anyways, that all my experience with math and data and uh, having an analytical framework for uh, looking at the world and why things happen uh, led me to become a data scientist. That's great. Yeah. And um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how that has maybe informed the direction that you're trying to take with your career from uh, uh, almost like an advocacy perspective or from a the perspective, it is, you know, International Women's Day. Um, how have you been able to both uh, take advantage of your, your sort of math and STEM career, but also think about how that relates to be, relates to you as a woman and as someone, uh, you know, because uh, your, your background, you grew up in Mexico, is that right? That's right. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about how, um, how, uh, you know, some of these issues around STEM and, uh, you know, really just trying to get women and girls to understand uh, how you're a role model and how you might be able to, to sort of help other, help some of our listeners understand from, based on your experience, uh, yeah. how, they, how they might be able to, to learn and how it's sort of informing what you do. 
Sure. So for me, International Women's Day is a, a very meaningful and symbolic day because especially in uh, typically male-dominated fields like science and technology, uh, historically we've done uh, a lot, we've, we've taken big strides in trying to create more, more gender equality and equity. And it just reminds me of my younger years when I did not feel supported by my surroundings for pursuing a career in STEM. And I had a, a wonderful mentor at Brandeis University. Her name was Janet Matei, mm-hmm. who when we were uh, walking around uh, looking, she was an astronomer and she would always say that stars were the wildflowers of the universe while uh, flowers were the stars of the earth. Wow. And she told me something great. She said, uh, I told her I'm really scared. I don't have the support of my friends and family back in Mexico. And I'm not sure I can do this, you know, study physics because I, I had been told by professors in school, in high school and all that, that maybe I should better pick something more feminine instead mm. of uh, studying physics. And so I was, uh, really uh, kind of afraid of, of jumping in. And she, she said to me, not only do you have to pursue your dreams and follow your passions because nobody else will do it for you, but now you have to be a role model mm. for all these other women that like yourself feel attracted to science or STEM, but who for some reason, whether it be social or economical, feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. And that led me onto a path of uh, not only pursuing my own career in STEM, but really focusing a big portion of my efforts and developing my career as a, as a mentor. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, I helped uh, a number of initiatives whose main focus is to inspire and encourage young women uh, to pursue careers in, in STEM. So I was involved with Technovation Challenge, with Women Who Code, um, with Girls Inc.'s program called Giga3, where we wrote the first data science curriculum for high school girls of underserved backgrounds, et cetera. So I think uh, I feel uh, precisely because my, my background was one where I did not easily uh, uh, fall into a, a STEM career, I have the I had the privilege to pursue that career and therefore I have the responsibility to help others. So I mentor young women one-on-one. I also uh, participate in a lot of conferences and initiatives, hackathons and and workshops and and all that internationally where I I try to educate other women and minorities uh, to succeed in the STEM world. You know, it's, it strikes me that you're, you're here as a physicist and data scientist who happens to be a woman. I think, though, that that's probably underselling the experience that you've had. I mean, you, you were, I'm going to, since you're not, you're, you're probably too humble to do it. I, I will say that you are, a, you are a first, the first Mexican-American woman to graduate with a PhD in physics from Stanford. Um, I think that's, that's not just, and you also happen to be a woman. I think it's like that is something that is celebration worthy and that you, you know, have a, I, I are playing this role for, for girls and women in, uh, in science and math and engineering today that you're, you know, providing a, 
uh, a, a role model. You talked about mentorship, that you can be a model that people can sort of imagine their own future around. And I think that's, I think that's great. Um, it, it just, if you would just, just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you see, you know, as your career has, has matured, how you see the current landscape of, of women in education and maybe, maybe especially in STEM. Sure. Well, thank you for mentioning that. I, I do think that uh, I was very fortunate, but it, I should also say it took a lot of courage and effort. And I think it's important for young women to know that uh, people who make it in the field or who have success in their careers, it doesn't necessarily mean that we did not have obstacles. It's important to know that the people who win the race, so to speak, and get to the end are not the ones for whom things come easily, but they are the ones uh, that get up after every obstacle and don't give up. And I think that's an important skill and a lesson to, to teach uh, young women that it, it's to get to the top, it takes uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, and that's a good thing uh, because that shapes you in the process and, and then you can really uh, be humble and help others. In terms of what I see for STEM, I think, uh, like I said in the beginning, I'm very, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to see that a lot of the efforts and initiatives that uh, have started maybe 15 years ago uh, were collecting uh, the fruits of that labor and we're seeing a lot more women. I work for a tech company, Metis, where most of the uh, man management positions are held by women. Mm -hmm. Our marketing director, our careers uh, director, our chief data scientist, etc. We're all women. And that is just a fantastic accomplishment and, and speaks volumes about uh, Metis and, and Kaplan. And, and we're not the only company that's doing that. I, I do see an increasing uh, diversity in some boards and etc. However, Having said all of that, there's still a lot of room for growth and improvement. And while we are uh, making more uh, programs available and accessible to minorities, uh, we, are, we still have a lot of work to do in building a strong pipeline to get to the top. In other words, we, help, we have a big uh, funnel uh, opening at the bottom where we get a lot of women into these education programs, but then we need to help them and support them on the way to management positions and, and really, uh, you know, grow higher and higher in their careers. Yeah, I love your tie to uh, the importance of mentorship, uh, even in terms of, uh, by the way, you're that uh, astronomy professor who was your mentor. Uh, it sounds like she could have also been uh, a poet at the same time. Yeah, I, I think that was, she's my new mentor, too. <laughs> that was beautiful. Look her up. Beautiful language. But um, can you talk a little bit just about the importance of, of mentorship and also of uh, countering maybe the imposter syndrome, which I know is something that's uh, talked about a lot throughout uh, throughout Metis and throughout becoming a data scientist. Can you talk a little bit about how, as a mentor, you can sort of make it okay and maybe talk to talk to younger women or women who are emerging into the field about uh, yes. how to navigate it? Yes. For me, mentorship is everything. And I often tell a lot of the young women that come for advice to me, I tell them, don't go to the 
don't take a job at a large company because of the name and the reputation of the company. Go to a place of work where you're going to have good mentoring. That is way more, more important, especially in the beginning of your career as the, the you know, big name uh, for the company. And the reason why I've experienced mentorship as the key to my career and my success is because coming from the background that I, that I came uh, with, I encountered a mentor at Brandeis who, while I was studying philosophy, he and I, uh, he was my TA in my astronomy course, which was the first course I ever had the courage to take in physics. And uh, to make the story short, he basically ended up believing in me and mentoring me for a whole summer and helping me learn the ropes to be able to start the physics undergrad degree in the middle of it and finish it in two years as opposed to in four years. And that's only because he sat with me every day and he gave me confidence to solve all those physics problems. And I owe him that pivotal moment of my career where I ended up uh, going into physics. And the wonderful thing about him is that when I wanted to compensate him for all his tutoring and all his time, he said to me that when he was growing up in India, in Darjeeling, like the tea, mm. uh, there was this, this there was this old man who used to climb up to his, his town, uh, which was very steep in the mountains. And the old man used to teach him and his sisters the tabla, the musical instrument, mm -hmm. math and English. And when the family wanted to compensate this old man, he said, no, the only way you could ever pay me back is if you do this with someone else in the world. Wow. And that's exactly how Rupesh passed the torch to me for mentorship, for continuing uh, to inspire and encourage other women who, like myself, felt the desire to pursue careers in STEM. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I definitely uh, encourage uh, women to reach out to other uh, potential mentors. They don't have to be uh, women. I've had amazing mentors who, who have been men. And uh, definitely find that connection with someone who's just going to care about the steps and every single thing that you do is going to pay attention and give you critical feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk about inspiration. I think uh, you, uh, Deborah, are yourself uh, super inspiring. We talked about you being a physicist and data science, uh, data scientist. Uh, that's not it. Uh, you're also a uh, TV host and an yes. educator, entrepreneur. Um, yes. I think you're also another first. I think you are our first guest with a Wikipedia page. So, oh, I have a Wikipedia page. Oh, you don't know this? Yeah, you can check yourself out, Google it, uh, put your name in, and. Um, uh, oh, I just hope it doesn't have my age. It, uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, I guess that we're now putting that on blast. Um, but uh, that is hashtag life goal there for, for us. Nice. Uh, trending in education and Wikipedia page. But, uh, but Deborah, you have one. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think uh, just so many in so many different walks of life have, have been successful and inspirational. I wonder as, we, as we're wrapping here, if you could just, um, you know, on, on this International Women's Day, just tell us, uh, you know, what else is, uh, what else is on your mind? What's on my mind is that the women's movement is going through a pretty special time right now. I think, you know, women in tech is a big theme for the next year. The Me Too movement uh, has uncovered stories of, you know, power disadvantages 
uh, we have uh, all sorts of voices talking about, you know, women's wage gap and, and uh, all sorts of cultural, educational, economical and political shifts. And so I think it's really a key moment where we should all put our collective minds together and help uh, equalize the, the uh, level the play, playing fields for, for women. And I, sh I just want to add that I don't uh, believe in, 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 well, I don't like the interpretation that by celebrating women, we are not celebrating men. Mm -hmm. I think we're just adding to, to that. And I, I, I want to encourage men to support uh, the celebration of women in all these environments. It's not a, a uh, zero sum uh, plus game. It's really a, a uh, we can all work together for, uh, to improve our, our collective future and to really take our society to a higher level of happiness, peace, uh, collaboration, and uh, well-being. Wow. That's... Uh... That's pretty fantastic. I mean, as to, as uh, as two men who are interviewing you, I think uh, we are inspired. You are inspirational, and uh, I imagine our our listeners uh, feel similarly. We would love to spend more time talking to you because we didn't really get into the the more the the substance of the data science side, which uh, yeah. which is there's plenty of depth there. So we'd love to to get you back on the show uh, in the future to to be able to spend spend more time with you but um but just thanks uh thanks so much for your time uh we uh, i'm sure our listeners are getting a ton out of this yeah and uh thank i i also uh i think uplifting comment to uh, to end on thank you and in addition to the data science piece we, we haven't had you we haven't really gotten into the depth of the edutainment piece oh, which yes. we uh you know, we also like. So yes. thanks again, Dr. Deborah Barabiches, uh, the chief data scientist at Metis as a Kaplan uh, sister company. Thank you so much for being here. And I'll echo Mike's sentiments. Uh, let's, uh, let's definitely get you back on again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Dan Strafford joined by Rochelle Rothstein, head of innovation and product strategy at Kaplan Test Prep. Rochelle, first and foremost, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. We're, we're celebrating International Women's Day here on the podcast. We're hearing from a, a cross-section of Kaplan Test Prep employees and uh, others who have had uh, work in education and sharing their stories. I want to take a, a moment to talk about yours here, Rochelle, and, and look back at your education and maybe the, the help you got along the way, maybe some roadblocks you saw and, and what uh, you did to get past them, share your story to help uh, our listeners understand uh, what you did and maybe what they can do with their careers and, and their education. So take me back. Uh, you were a biology major in college, right? A science major. What was that like going into college? Was that your goal? Was it science all the time for you? Yeah, I was a pre-med from, uh, from an early age. I'd say probably by the time I was in high school, I, I knew I was going to pursue that path. So I was a type of kid who focused on reading like nonfiction because it was true, you know, so I, I, I was really uh, serious about science. And um, when I went to college, uh, you know, pursued a, a scientific major, but ended up actually finding an entire other world in college that I enjoyed uh, as much as I did the sciences and actually did better. <laughs> so it was a sort of an awakening, uh, educational awakening about the, uh, what, where, where my 
interests lie and where and how my brain worked. It's uh, we heard a similar story from from Debbie uh, from Metis uh, about a similar path of going with a certain thought, but also realizing there was more to it. What opened up your eyes? Was it a, a mentor? Was it somebody in college? Was it a course you took? Uh, what was something that happened uh, in your time there to really change maybe a little bit of the, your path uh, in education? Baroque and Rococo painting by J.R. Martin, who uh, was a fantastic instructor. It was just the most electrifying uh, class. Um, and that got me interested uh, in art history, which I sort of, I didn't officially minor in because at Princeton to minor in something, you have to write two theses and I wasn't going to do that. Um, so I ha uh, sort of took a lot of classes there and, and um, you know, also the, frankly, because uh, Princeton had a um, distribution requirements, uh, forced me <laughs> to continue on with foreign language and to take um, uh, literature courses. And I, I, I think that was, I took a Civil War course with James McPherson, who is, a, you know, an expert in his field. And um, that really sort of opened my mind to the, the more right side of my brain. And I never questioned at the time whether or not uh, I was doing you know, the right thing going into medical school. It had been sort of this preordained path. I probably didn't spend uh, enough time challenging uh, whether I really wanted to do it or not. Because as you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> I ended up not practicing medicine. So, but when people say, do you um, regret all that the years put in, whatever, um, not at all. I actually, uh, I'm sort of a big old nerd and I thought medical school was fantastic. And I delivered babies and I helped people deal with, you know, terminal illness. And these are, you know, life experiences that are, you know, hard to come by. So I, I don't at all regret all, all the learning um, and the experiences. What transitioned you into the career you now hold? Like, was it that uh, coming together of the right and left side of your brain you talked about before when you, you were in college and you realized there were other paths to go? Or what, what brought you to uh, your current career as uh, head of uh, innovation at, at Kaplan? So when I left, uh, I left my internship, I did not know what I was going to do. I sort of assumed I um, would either try another specialty. I had been in internal medicine or that I would transition into industry, probably pharmaceutical. Um, and then the reality of paying my rent <laughs> um, required me to get a, a, a job while I was figuring out what I was gonna do. So I taught for Kaplan. And I had a lot of feedback about the, the teaching materials and I was very um, engaged in, in making things better and thinking about how I would do this differently. and the people who ran the Long Island Center uh, said, hey, you know, our company is building out a marketing department uh, around the medical licensure business. I bet you they would love, you know, an MD who, you know, is passionate about education and who cares about quality to work with them. So that's how I ended up uh, at Kaplan, first in the medical department in marketing, and then I transitioned from marketing to product development to general management um, and then eventually as I um, became more specialized in in new product development and and 
as the web developed uh, new capabilities, I got excited by how we could transform the learning experience from what traditionally had been in a Kaplan Center to, uh, to online. So I worked on um, quite, uh, developing technology to help people personalize their assessments, something called QBank. And I worked uh, um, on Live Online, bringing our classes uh, into cyberspace, although that... <laughs> <laughs> um, so that so that you could have the best teachers teaching the most number of students. So that people who, especially because we were, we have not only, you know, young people, but we also have uh, uh, doctors who are, you know, older, who have other jobs or women who have children. And, and the idea of being able to take the, a class uh, from the comfort of your home was uh, really attractive. So I just, uh, like thinking about how the advances in technology can make learning more engaging and more effective and more communal. I mean, so there's so many things you can do. So it's very, very exciting. Endless kind of creative challenges. Something uh, we talk about uh, a lot here on, on the podcast, uh, technology and the advancement in education, but it also helps uh, me transition quite easily here to a conversation we were having before uh, we started recording around uh, advancements in technology, uh, the ability uh, of uh, an individual to be able to work from home, to be able to work uh, on the road, uh, to have more access to more careers as well. Uh, Kaplan, for those of you who don't know, has a very large remote workforce, uh, people who can work from home or work from any parts of, of the U.S. or beyond. Uh, so what, from your viewpoint, uh, technology advancement-wise, has it opened up career advancement? Uh, has it been, maybe in the, the, the lens of International Women's Day, a little bit uh, of a potential equalizer and, and bringing uh, more careers to the fore uh, that may not have been accessible previously? What's your, what's your personal viewpoint uh, on how technology has helped uh, career advancement? Technology allows you to work remotely. Kaplan has always been, um, I mean, especially over the years, more and more liberal in, in, in policy about working remotely. But as the technology has advanced, it, it's become less of a, you know, isn't Kaplan progressive in letting people work remotely, but really isn't Kaplan smart to be able to get the best talent regardless of where it is. Our best faculty may not be in New York. Um, personally, it affords me the ability to go to California uh, and see my folks who are, um, you know, older and don't drive anymore and, you know, need my help uh, on occasion. And it makes me feel uh, very uh, free to do that. If I, if I had to, you know, if my work demanded that I be in New York City, you know, all year long, I would not be able to do that anymore. So I think for women who have uh, familial responsibilities, whether it's taking care of children or older parents, um, and for men as well, it's created a lot of opportunity. Also the whole gig economy, right? Or the idea of being able to combine a bunch of different projects. It just gives, it gives women and, and men more autonomy to construct their careers around their lives and around their core values. Uh, I, I don't think previous generations had that luxury. And so I think it's a, a great time and only going to get better. 
Absolutely. More and more technology will come out and make it easier and easier to connect and uh, make things work. Rochelle? Also, the social movements currently, you know, in progress are going to create a lot of awareness around around uh, inclusion of, of every kind and making sure that um, that a diversity of opinion it only makes for better companies. I believe that's actually been shown. Now, Rochelle, I want to close it out with just a, a, what is simple for me to ask, but probably not a simple answer. As we celebrate International Women's Day, is there anything on your mind? What's on your mind as we celebrate International Women's Day? What, what's uh, top of mind for you? I've been uh, tutoring my niece <laughs> in, in P, for, her, uh, for her PSATs. So I, what's top of mind for me is that she uh, and, and other young girls be able to do whatever it is that they want to do, you know, to, to find their lane and to pursue it. And I see such a, the younger generation is really, you know, uh, progressive and optimistic. And uh, you could see it with, of course, you know, not to be trite, but with the park, you know, the Parkland kids. I mean, kids these, these days are, I guess is woke the word uh, to me that means <laughs> have I gotten up in time to get to my meeting <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but so uh, yeah so what's on my mind is uh, you know trying uh, making sure that she doesn't make the same mistakes that I did in terms of defining my abilities too early you know um, and following a path that was one of the things that when you say you want to be a doctor, there won't be an adult around who says, don't do that. You know, if I said I want to be a puppeteer, I probably would have gotten some pushback, but I didn't get any pushback as a teenager. So I continued to pursue something that over time I realized wasn't right for me, but it led me to where I am. And I, I don't uh, regret those experience in medical school, both the intellectual challenge as well as the human experience. And uh, now I think uh, I've found the right balance between something, you know, being in education, something that's really sort of still intellectually very challenging, but in innovation and product development uh, demands a, a creative, nonlinear thinking that uh, as you guys who work with me know, <laughs> uh, uh, can be uh, can be a challenge. That's why people who are uh, non-linear need to partner with people who are linear to make the most effective as they say ideas without execution is our hallucinations uh you made mention of the mistakes you made talking to your niece what advice would you have for a you know pre-college or pre-med school rochelle like what what would the piece of advice you have for your younger self be uh if you can impart uh, a couple of words uh to yourself uh don't box yourself in and don't be afraid of doing, taking risks and of exploring things that you think you're not good at. I always uh, pursue, stayed where I thought I was good. Um, where I, and like, I didn't think I was good in English. So I didn't take the AP in English. And I actually was, my English instructors said I was one of her best English students, but in my mind, I was a science person. So don't be too quick to define yourself and try 
you know, be broad, take classes in every, you know, especially when you're younger, everything. And God, the internet, oh, what a great time to be a learner. Look at, I mean, my God, don't look at cat YouTubes or Netflix. There's Ed Talks and, you know, other free resources. There's time for both. There's time for both, of course, but uh, there is great, great content out there. Rochelle, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, Great talking to you, hearing uh, some of your backstory and some of your uh, advice for your younger self. Rochelle Rothstein, Head of Innovation and Product Strategy. We'll be back with more right here on Trending in Education's Extra on International Women's Day right after this. I have the pleasure of being joined here by uh, Nancy Sanchez, the executive director of the Kaplan Foundation, uh, who we, we have featured on a trending in, episode, trending in Education episode in the past. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. And, uh, and also Esther Lee, who, uh, who has also been featured on the show as recently as this, our most recent show, uh, talking about emojis. Uh, Esther is the director of program development here for Kaplan's digital media team uh, and has uh, actually both Esther and Nancy have, uh, have really interesting careers and experiences that we're going to dive into on, on today's show. So welcome uh, to you as well. Hello Esther. again. Hello. Yeah, you're becoming a, becoming a regular on the show. It's, 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 uh, it's pretty great. Uh, so, so yeah, for International Women's Day, I thought we might begin with uh, just a bit of an open-ended question. And uh, I'll start with you, uh, Nancy. Um, any general thoughts about International Women's Day? Like what's, what's on your mind uh, heading into International Women's Day this year? Well, I, whenever we're thinking of celebrating women and especially looking at it from an international perspective, mm-hmm. I always think of what it means to invest in women. Mm-hmm. What does it mean you know, it, once you, especially in the education of women? And usually, and the research indicates, and I'm not going to get into the numbers, that once you invest in the education of women, you really are investing in an entire community because women really give themselves to the community in so many ways. And um, at the Capital Educational Foundation, we're proud to do that uh, each year. Um, but of course, there's such a need because uh, women are also have so many more responsibilities often um, that it is accessing education is often a, not a, a reality for them. And so I always think of all of that talent uh, especially talented women out there from different perspectives, from rif- different countries that are not being fully developed um, simply because there aren't enough resources for that uh, person to really to be able to step away from all of the responsibilities and for once dedicated to investing in themselves and how that has so many returns. Mm. Yeah, that's a... Uh... Wow, that's great, uh, Esther. You ready to to follow that? Thought? It's not a com- you, you, it's not a competition, uh, but I thought that I thought that was that was wonderful. Uh, but uh, but how about you? What what uh, what's got your attention on uh, on International Women's Day? It is hard to follow uh, what Nancy just said, but I completely agree with everything she just said. Um, I think it's great that there has been a new platform, many new platforms for women to speak out and talk about their, the challenges that we've been facing. Um, I think it's beautiful that uh, Trending in Education is inviting women to speak and uh, we get more voices now and there's been so many hashtags, including the Me Too movement, yep. you know, International Women's Day. Um, and I think that the awareness is super important and that's where we're getting at. So maybe the goal for the future would be not just having an International Women's Day, but continuing this effort throughout all days with Mm -hmm. both women and men of uh, color and diversity so that we're 
completely including all people at all times. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Good. So you're you're both uh, very eloquent and uh, and excellent uh, excellent advocates uh, on on today's show. Um, since it's about education, because the show is education and uh, Kaplan is about education and learning. Uh, maybe starting with you, uh, Esther. How did you get into the field of education uh, that you're in now? What, what, uh, what? How does your background sort of? How has it brought you to education? Uh, what can you share with us about that? Sure. Um, it's to to make the long story a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get into special education with a passion for teaching students uh, with uh, disabilities, um, and you know the. Students come in many diverse forms. And so I taught in the Bronx, as you know, as a special education teacher for students with multiple disabilities. um, And they had a baseline disability of emotional disturbance. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, I learned the value of utilizing technology for making sure that the curriculum is more integrated and universal for students. So I developed this passion for educational technology. And so I moved on to grad school to study just that and then came out, um, tried doing education and consulting for public schools. Um, and I did in instructional designer work uh, at startups and uh, other platforms. And then now I'm here uh, doing digital media work for you, for mm. Kaplan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so like education has been pretty central to you really throughout your uh, career. So like you, you began as a teacher, went back for more, uh, more, more, uh, re- more education yourself uh, around education. Uh, so, uh, so a lot of, a lot of those themes emerging and then uh, universal design for learning uh, is something that I think we'll want to make sure we get a few more minutes with you on. Cause I know it's something you've had uh, more of a, a, an advocacy mm-hmm. sort of uh, stance on that. Uh, how about you, uh, Nancy? What, um, what what brought you to the field of education? And uh, you also have uh, quite an interesting background. Yeah, like similar to, to Esther, I really started um, pursuing an education in early childhood education. So we're saying education a lot. <laughs> um, um, but I started at Kingsborough Community College and basically pursued early childhood education. And my placement was mostly in, very, in private schools in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. think about the private schools in the Park Slope area, uh, you know, one of the wealthiest areas. And so here I am, somebody that never had access to to, to a great education, uh, public education, and here I am being placed there. And I remember oftentimes not just engaging the students, but engaging the parents, and everybody was engaged, mm-hmm. uh, or the nannies, or anybody that was supporting that family, which is really a huge network. Um, many teachers in the classroom, totally supportive, open-ended, um, really developing the full child. And then I started to volunteer. I needed to do some more hours. And so I started to volunteer in a public school. And I was um, le- the left first time that I, I left crying mm. because it took everything I had to see how the difference between the private school that I was attending and then these students that looked like me, students of color, low income were really not having the resources. And when the parents came in to pick them up, because I used to come in later, the sad story was that um, many of them wouldn't come inside the door. They weren't really engaged. And I'm not going to put that on the parents. They're mostly women. So I started to think about how 
I wanted to educate the women and the parents that were coming in um, as to what was happening inside the classroom because I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's really has been what pushed me outside of early childhood education and put me towards how can I really train and prepare um, people to be great citizens, great parents, great family members, and to be leaders in all of those aspects. Yeah, it's uh, good. That that really ties to something that I've always uh, believed in and implemented when I was uh, teaching in the Bronx. So I also found that a lot of the women, the mothers of the children that I taught, uh, were maybe scared or maybe a little bit nervous to come into the school building. Um, whenever we made a phone call home or wrote a note home, they would expect the notes or the phone calls to be negative but it was usually a positive thing that we would send. So we made sure that on the first day of school, we would make a phone call home and make sure that it's a positive thing. You know, I'm the new teacher for your child, John, and he's been doing really great on this first day, and I'm really happy to be his classroom teacher. And that phone call would be enough to have the parents, especially the mothers, uh, a lot of them were single moms, and um, that would kind of open them up and, invite them into uh, schools more and that was helpful yeah i mean and, and today as you know as we celebrate um international women and we know that people communicate in the in very different ways and that education has different meaning to meet different people and i think especially when we're looking at the immigrant community in the u.s how important it is for every school to have that sensitivity of how do i get this parent involved because i refuse to accept that these parents do not want to be involved. But how hard are you working to mm -hmm. do that? I mean, I, I love to draw comparisons between those students that have access to resources, right? Have access to Kaplan test prep, have mm -hmm. access to advisors and people who will help them and how there is a communication engagement of everyone, right? So we have to work really hard um, and do whatever needs to be done to involve those parents because that's there is so much there. Mm -hmm. To have them on our side should not be seen as, oh my gosh, we have to work so hard. No, mm -hmm. no, they are really talented people that love their children, that oftentimes speak multiple languages, that are multicultural. How do we engage them? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And uh, and you're hitting on some interesting themes there too, just around, uh, you even mentioned this, like teaching the whole student yeah. and understanding um, what additional support is needed to really get uh, get kids the education and young adults uh, the education that they need. Um, can you talk about that maybe from the perspective of the, the Kaplan Foundation where in many ways you're in some ways building the support system uh, that's specifically designed to help folks in ways that maybe the traditional support system may, may or may not be there? Absolutely. And, and again, talking about education, we really have to think of education of women and how important it is, is in that investment, right? Going back to that and, and how if we are going to make an, a, a really uh, to bring diversity and create access for all students, engaging women and developing them is so important, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that is so interconnected and that often there is a lack of of language skills. And let me say this, it's just a lack of understanding of higher education. Esther, Michael, all of us can sit here and say associate's degree, bachelor's degree, whole student, whole language, that has to be explained. Mm -hmm. And we can never, 
we have to educate our parents to be the best consumers of education. What is the SAT? What does it do? What is the ACT? What is the difference? Mm -hmm. um, we really all have to be able to to kind of involve ourselves in creating in our in our students and those parents and women for themselves because educating a woman again gives so much to say how can we get them to really fully engage in this process of accessing higher education for themselves for their children mm -hmm. and understand the meaning of it and when their people are talking to them about the different types of education you're not speaking at them you're really speaking to somebody that can really discern what is good for their child or not as opposed to the outsiders making decisions for those children. Those women have something to say and should be educated to, to be uh, advocates for those students. Yeah. And I guess there's a lot of work that educators and folks in the field like yourselves can do to sort of think about empathizing with the mother or empathizing with uh, the child who maybe has been exposed to a different background than the educator has. Can you, can you sort of give a little bit of uh, maybe examples of ways in which we can um, show, show folks that we are open and aware of different perspectives and ways in which we need to reach learners where they are? I think, you know, uh, just think of those women outside the classroom, many of them who were leaving very tedious jobs, working all day, right, low pay. Maybe a, some of them are single, maybe some of them are married, working, you know, many hours, but still not being able to kind of make ends meet. So I think having a sensitivity of scheduling and making sure that you really understand what are the schedules of those parents, who is in the network, and who beyond that parent you can engage. Is it the uncle? Is it, you know, uh, it's becoming flexible mm -hmm. enough that you will be able to facilitate. I think it's just like when they say that low-income people do not vote. It's I remember my mom having to make a decision between am I going to make this money or am I going to go and vote? Right. My mom voted, but mm -hmm. it cost her money. Right. Right. Yep. So I think the same thing is true that you're making a decision between am I able to make a living today or is my, you know, maybe I don't have a job that is uh, really understanding that this is important to me. And so therefore, so creating that flexibility, not assuming that everybody has the same needs, mm -hmm. and especially again, in the international community and in international women, there are so many different things. Like, you know, think of Kaplan offices here. We have very similar schedules, many responsibilities, but if we wanted to go to our children's school, we could do that because everybody understands the importance of education, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And we would be supported. I think it's just understanding those hurdles to engaging those those the families. Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, Esther reminds me a little bit of um, universal design, uh, where which I know, uh, you know, you're uh, you're a proponent of, uh, and uh, you did research on this uh, in graduate school, but um, you know, so just kind of building on where Nancy was going, um, what's the right way to think about designing products and services for everybody, and when folks are stretched around their time and competing commitments mm -hmm. and economic challenges and whatever other challenges are out there, can we learn from universal design and? Should that inform our thinking about this stuff? Mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, when I spoke 
with Nancy for the first time, I know I was really touched by all the work that she's been doing and what the foundation really represents for Kaplan because um, a lot of the education sectors are based in, uh, if there's a curve, a bell curve of students, uh, most companies will gear towards the middle, the quote unquote average. But what Nancy's been doing is looking at um, the students who are often not looked at. Uh, so the bottom end of the bell curve, the students who might not have had the same opportunities, who might uh, be a little bit diverse uh, away from the average. They had different experiences and they have different backgrounds. And so you're giving them a leeway into um, here are your other opportunities. Here's a here's what it means to get a financial aid package. Here's what it means to transfer. Here's what it means to study for the SAT and what it means to take the ACT versus SAT. All those little things that uh, we take for granted as the quote unquote average student. I think the foundation is doing a great job just telling the students um, how to really up their up their education. Uh, pathway. So in that, uh, universal design is uh, really gearing everything towards the different ends of the bell curve so that when you're actually accessing those ends of the bell curve, you're meeting the needs of the people who are bound to be in between. Um, so for example, what you're doing with the transfer students, right? Um, maybe they had different opportunities and different backgrounds, but if it's gonna work for them, then it'll work for the quote unquote average student. Um, so it really it's thinking, putting a different thinking cap on and saying, instead of just labeling students as the average and the norm, uh, why don't we look really outside and beyond that uh, middle of the bell curve and try to integrate more and look at the diversity and the vastness of the audience that we have here, because then we're bound to catch more. Mm -hmm. And that is so interesting, because I do remember the first time that we spoke, I know you're a transfer student, so I was <laughs> celebrating that. But it, it, it really just goes back to the, the fact that the United States is a diverse country, that education is so important in uh, upward movement, and being able to be a, a citizen and participate, to be able to be a leader in your community, to be able to uh, retire, you know, well, to be able to really be a good parent, to be a good, just a good person that is able to fully engage. And so I think if, if we are not looking at that full bell curve, right? If we're not looking to say, let's just look how we can serve all of these groups. We're really losing an opportunity to really get uh, a society that is fully engaged. And I always say uh, that for democracy to work, right, it has to have an educated populace. Mm -hmm. That was the assumption for years. And I think that I, I say that for democracy to, to fully work, having educated women is so important. And having educated women who see feminism and so who see uh, their power in many different ways. I, we're not here to judge, you know, if, if you're not, you don't have a formal education, but what are, what information do you have so you can be the most best advocate for your child at the school? I, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, I, I lived and experienced everything that you're talking about. My parents, their first language is Korean and uh, with my mother, you know, 
English is still not her forte. And uh, growing up, my uh, mother worked long hours, my father worked long hours, and I still didn't know when I was transferring as a college student what I was doing. I solely did that based on my passion for special education and the school I attended just happened to not have a special education program. So I transferred, but then didn't know anything about how the financial aid is going to roll over, what my package is going to be like, what's going to be different, how many loans I need to take out. Even when receiving those packages, we had to put all of our family members' heads together and figure this out. And we actually got some of it wrong. And it, it mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, kind of followed me after college and I had to figure out how to really work around it. So if I had someone like you to help me out and mentor me and guide me through even somebody who can kind of just help me read the fine prints of something when it's not our first language would have been so helpful. And I think it's a wonderful thing what you're doing with the students. Well, thank you. And I think that that's what many of our students face, right? That, you know, from even applying to a community college, I mean, how powerless, right? how left out of the equation somebody is too much of a fuzz and i you know i still volunteer in high schools and mm-hmm. visit high school too much of a fuzz to give all of this language skills and all of this explanation to the students about the different choices that you have of education and again thinking about going back to that women's issue especially because women are so bogged down with so many responsibilities yes there's even less time for you to kind of educate that woman and to kind of think of all perspectives. So it, it's so important that we allow, it's almost like we all need to stop and say, why is it that we need to, to give this, empower women? Mm-hmm. Because the returns will be immeasurable. Actually, everybody would benefit. Yeah. And it's been shown that if you invest in the education of women, as opposed to men, and again, men are our allies. I'm not a person that says, you know, um, and who cares about men? No. Actually, that's part of the education. It's mm-hmm. how to have a healthy relationship, right? Right, right. right. How, how to, to really go to mentors. And I know, Esther, you mentioned mentorship and how important that is. Because in my lifetime, I have been surrounded by both male and female mentors. And each one of them has played a very important role for me. Because especially, you know, for, for women, of course, and a role model. But being able to 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 really work among men, and, and I can tell you here at Kaplan, I am surrounded by so many people that have mentored me through this process uh, as executive director, and that is their confidence that they have in me. And and so as a first generation student, that I didn't have that to be surrounded by both men and women who can mentor me through my career and who can really. Um, kind of be that cheerleader, but a cheerleader with information that I can use, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just like, yeah, you can do it uh, Mm -hmm. because we can all do that. But many who can really contribute. And also coming at it from a position of like deep empathy, like understanding not just the learning needs, but like the, just the, the time commitments and the, the, the financial commitments and all the different things that would distract someone from learning. Like when you can begin the conversation with that yeah. awareness and then figure out how do I, you know, how do we as educators sort of offer that as part of what we're providing rather than a one size fits all, exactly. you know, we're expecting everybody mm-hmm. from, from equal footing. We're getting close on time. Um, I do know just from a, the perspective of diversity, um, I know something you've talked eloquently about in the past, Nancy, is um, understanding different types of uh, 
needs that are out there. You've talked about uh, DACA students. You've yeah. talked about uh, former veterans. Um, are there are there places where folks need to think more broadly to understand what kinds of needs and what kinds of populations are out there? Absolutely, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because when we're thinking of the DACA and undocumented students, right, again, just think about somebody who has been raised in this country, who has been attending school, who has really already contributed greatly to, to, the, to, the, you know, to the nation. It is so important that we work towards making sure that they have access to education and that they have access to information. Because the fact is that um, many four-year institutions, especially those on the top tier, are really have been proponents and truly advocates of saying, we, we can accept you and we can fund you. Not as many, but there are many out there. Mm -hmm. I think that also for veterans, again, it, how important it is that not just the veteran, but the entire family, when they come back, they can access a university or a college, and that they're really um, then using all of the leadership skills that they develop in the military to then, again, a quicker return comes back to the community, continues to give. The non-traditional age students are also, uh, uh, again, I love the 26-year-old, 27-year-old, 30-year-old that has a family that says, I am a leader of this family. I could be a leader in my company. I need access to education. And that can mean online education. Sure. That can mean uh, a private, you know, uh, brick and mortar school. It doesn't, we don't, we st have to stop defining those things and saying only just a four year, only a community college, only online. They should know enough, to your point, Esther, about kind of from financial aid to all of that to be mm -hmm. able to decipher what is the best choice for them and their families. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and for, I, I want to go back also to the male presence, that how important it is for us to, especially that we celebrate women, that we celebrate the men who support us and that we, especially in first generation low income communities, especially when there are a lot of single parents, we often forget about the importance of uh, men in our lives mm -hmm. um, and, and how it is important that we also empower in them uh, so that they can empower us. That's going to do it for this episode of Trending in Education, a very special edition as we celebrate International Women's Day. Thank you so much to our guests, Deborah Barabichez, Esther Lee, Nancy Lee Sanchez, and Rochelle Rothstein. If you like what you heard, I ask you please subscribe over on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Trending and Ed. Leave a comment, leave a rating on iTunes. Let us know what you like about the podcast and what topics you want us to cover in the future. We release our show every Tuesday morning, talk about the world of learning, the world of education, ed tech, and so much more. So with that said, we thank you for listening to Trending in Education. <laughs>